Well, I once went through a job interview for a product position one time, and they told me they didn't feel I had enough B2B and B2C experience. Like and? A, really? Yeah, a mix of both. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, a mix of both. I have worked on software for direct-to-consumers, so I've worked on B2C software, but a large majority of my career has been B2B software. So it was, it was interesting feedback, but it always stuck in my mind. And that's why it's super interesting to highlight a post like this that I flagged for us to talk about. This one caught my attention just because of that experience, that one experience that I had, which might have been, it might have been nonsense, but they, they, they might have been lying to me to protect my fragile ego or whatever. But he says, hey, the, the B2B, B2C split that people are looking for, exactly like my story, this individual thinks it's irrelevant. The split is irrelevant. Yes. And I think his point is it's all human focused is what he's saying. Right. So let's read through this. So he says in B2B, the sales cycle might be longer. You might use different metrics. The customer might be more than one person, but it's always human to human. I, I, yeah, I guess in B2C, the customer could be more than one person too. You yeah, know, maybe. he's selling to different personas maybe. perhaps. So he says three groups of arguments. Number one is core PM skills. Number two is the PM books experiment. I don't know what that means. And number number three is common arguments. So he's saying, let's have an argument about the core PM skills. So let's look at his argument lines. Number one for saying that B2B, B2C, they're not really great divisions for product people because exhibit A, core PM skills. He says the general PM skills are a strong focus and prioritization. So skill, strong focus and prioritization, empathy for the customers, covering and experimenting mindset, basically a growth mindset mm-hmm. is what he's trying to yeah. say. Yeah. Critical thinking, comfortable uncertainty, data focus, working with data, clear communication skills, leading and influencing others, negotiating. None of these are B to B or B to C. And then his part two is product specific PM skills is knowing your marketing industry, understanding the trends and the dynamics in that industry, competitors, understanding the landscape of that industry, understanding the business, obviously, and knowing your product very well. Those very general skills that are common to all PMs. I don't know why he breaks them up into categories of general PM skills and product-specific skills. I guess he means transferable skills and non-transferable, meaning transferable with the industry. So I started in the logistics industry. I have a lot of experience, deep experience in what truck drivers and dispatchers and company owners and stuff like that in logistics understand. Those transfer when I go to another logistics firm as a PM. But if I jump to like healthcare, I don't know anything about it. So I have some level of industry expertise. I wouldn't have called it product specific. No, PM I call that domain knowledge. Yeah, I would have called it domain knowledge. But what he labels is general PM skill. I don't label as skill. Well, I, I don't label as skill at all. A few of those aren't necessarily skills. Like for example, the second one, emp- empathy is not a skill. Empathy is a trait. That's what I think, anyway. Yeah. Uh, empathy is a trait. Yes, can you sharpen your traits? Yes, you can, but it's not a skill. You don't learn that by heart. I so By I, reading a book or taking a course. Yeah. You have it or you don't have it. I'm going to drink a bit, a bit of coffee before I say this. Coffee's good. I feel like we're paving the way to Podcast 100 right now, which may or may not be Carol Dweck's mindset with Ed. But uh, what... What he's talking about here, his bullet point number three, discovery and experimentation mindset. When I edit this podcast, 
I will put a screenshot of his stuff in the middle of the screen so yeah. it can be on the screen and people can look at it while we're talking. But yeah. his bullet point number three, which you really should have numbered these. Seriously, LinkedIn, add bullet points to your, to your like, come on. I know, it's 2023. Yeah, it's 2023. Like all, <laughs> You can't add rich text editing capability to your f- Facebook knockoff site. His bullet point number three, discovery and experimentation mindset. What he means is you want your product people to have a growth mindset, not a fixed mindset. And right. the way you discover that through the interviews is you'll ask them about this. Can you vet for that in the interview? You can try. I think you can try by looking for examples of what the candidate's done mm-hmm. in make the question situational is what I'm saying. You say, presented with this situation, how would you have fared, right? How would, what would you oh, do? Tell me about a time. Type, yeah, 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 that type, sort of thing. So thing, yeah. you can tell, you can kind of glean from what their responses are, yeah. what sort of mindset they have uh, to a certain degree. I don't think there is absolutes though. Yeah. You need to find somebody who has a natural impulse of, let me go and show you in the data what my opinion is, rather than, this is my opinion. Right. I I know that all users do this, because I know. I'll present the two sides of this. One side is, why bother hiring people with industry experience if I'm not going to trust their experience? The other side is, if they have industry experience, it should be even easier for them to go acquire the data to back up what they're saying. Those are the two sides of it. So so number one is I trust your opinion and you really, I don't need a bunch of extra data because I'm hiring the expert. And the other side of it is I don't trust your opinion so I want data to back up what you're saying all the time. But I feel I'm painting a super black and white picture out of something that really is shouldn't be black and white. So some of these things that are more characteristics or traits are grouped in under skills. How do you have a skill that says curiosity? Can you learn that? So I think some of these are more characteristics of a person rather than skills. Some things are skills, clearly, like working with data and abstracting, interpreting data, drawing inferences. You can learn all of that, but you can't learn curiosity. You can't learn perseverance, for example. But okay, fine, We'll, we'll cut him some slack there. So general PM skills, right? So he's saying all of these apply equally to B2B and B2C. That's what he's saying, right? Yeah, and do we agree with that? Yeah, which side do you wanna take here? I kinda wanna take the opposite side uh, of trying to point out where they don't, only because when I'm looking at this list, I I agree with him that these all apply to both. If I were to rearrange this list, I would put I'd put empathy for the customers at the top for the B to C solution, and I would put there's nothing really about a strategy and marketing and thinking from the perspective of how am I going to make my business the most money. I could also think of like systems thinking is also missing from this list. Like yes. I, I want somebody if I'm a B to B company, I want a systems thinker in there bringing me solutions and thinking up what thinking up how we can expand the product so that we don't become myopic on any one area we want things uh, enhancement bets that we make to pay off for the whole system for b2b yeah Uh, yeah i agree with that i think that that's valid i think the other point that's missing here is having the Having the mindset, think about monetization, right? You could do all of these things unless you're operating in a charity, yeah. B2B or B2C. You've got to have that mindset. And I think that's harder to do 
when the equation isn't clear in a B2B environment specifically. But in both of these environments, you need that mindset to say, what is going to be my return on investment, return on capital employed, and so forth. So that is kind of not really detailed out here, but it, it is needed. Is why, should the, why should the organization invest in a product enhancement or creating, creating a new product, regardless of whether it's B2B or B2C? What are their returns? Yeah. And how do they pan out over time? Let's think about that for a second. Is that an argument for B2B? Or is that an argument for B2C? That strategic thinking of where am I going three years from now? And that ability to extrapolate that. I mean, I guess you could you could roll it in under curiosity slash having a experimentation um, mindset. Uh, yeah, I think all of those are involved in that. But I do think there needs to be, it doesn't even necessarily even have to be three years. When you're building a product, you've got to figure out what the returns are going to be. At least project that out. What is the market need and how you're going to monetize that over time? Whatever that time frame is. Could be, it could be a year, could be five years or whatever it is. Yeah. What, what does your product roadmap look like? Your feedback, though, might be quicker from a, a, a B2B perspective. I don't know. I'm thinking that through as I said. Your customers are usually pretty quick to let you know in a B2C as well, right? But B2B, they are your customers. So the other business, they don't like what the product looks like. They're going to let you know up front. Well, I, maybe. So let, let's talk about that for a second. Let's talk about feedback because he doesn't really touch no. feedback. Again, you could roll a lot of stuff under curiosity and under empathy for the customers. And there's a lot of things you could roll under those categories. If you have real empathy for the customer, which I, which I put as my number one for B2C, and you have a, a true curiosity in your personality, like you'll kind of be driven by saying like, oh, I wonder how the users are reacting to feature X, feature Y, feature Z. You will build some kind of metrics into your program so that you don't have to guess how the users are reacting. You'll go out and find, you will actively seek how your users are interacting. And if you don't have it in the application, maybe you'll have forums or you'll have social media or you'll have blog posts. You'll have, yeah. you'll have something that you will go out and try to seek advice from your users, BC. B2B, on the other hand, like I've seen a bunch of times in B2B software, especially B2B software with yearly contractual renewals. Mm-hmm. Recurring, uh, yeah. Yeah. Recurring where, where like yeah. you have one chance per year to have a conversation with the person who buys the software about the, what they really want. And, and the, the, the worst case is they buy the software and you you get your sign off or whatever your organization does you get your hand off sign off hands off hey hands off whatever it is yeah and then they're like oh okay it works good and you don't get any feedback after that like that's the worst case scenario in yeah. b2b person that pays for the software says it seems to be working fine and nothing and then you look at your usage metrics in the application and they're not really using it you got paid because your renewal cycles once a year or whatever, because maybe you're dealing with large organizations or government or whatever. How do you feel as a PM now? Where, you know, like where, where he's saying in this general category, the curiosity, the perseverance, the growth mindset. Like, how do you feel now that like the, the buyer of the software is like, everything's great, but then nobody's using your software. Yeah, you really don't know. Yeah. That makes it very, very difficult to even assess any meaningful feedback so you can get any meaningful feedback and then adapt your 
strategy and your your product accordingly, right? It makes it very difficult because you don't know. Yeah. You don't hear back. That's the worst thing. I'd rather hear negative things than not hear back at all because you can do something with that info. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is probably the worst feedback. Yeah. Is Silence. no feedback. Yeah. Or, or, or it looks it looks good. Right. And then just quietly not using it. I think what you would need to do in that situation is drive toward the users to actively get feedback in the example that we're giving i hope everyone can infer that there like there's a lot of large bureaucracy baked into this example where it's like well i only meet with the buyer once a year and they tell me they're going to renew or they're not going to renew they don't really give me a lot of feedback along the way there's an opportunity we did a whole podcast on contracts it's super important it's going to sabotage your agility it's going to sabotage your effectiveness it's worth an hour to go back and listen to it because you can what we refer to in that podcast was you can build into the contract hey you need to meet with us monthly right that was the time frame that you suggested because i was like well maybe like if our iterations are two weeks like maybe we're not getting feedback every two weeks with the end of every iteration right but if we can build into the contract every 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 month we meet and we review hey these are the things we did that's better than nothing. I think so. I mean, it's just part and parcel of the TNCs, right? In the contract, it says we will meet with the customer once a month, mm-hmm. let's say. And depending on the product and the, the business you're in, that can change. But if you're building aircraft, it might not be once a month. That might be too soon. But anyway, yeah. you, ha- you can inspect that and adapt. But the thing is, though, if you're not meeting with the customer when that contract is signed until you turn over a product to them, even if it's an early look, that's yeah. way too late. Yeah. I guess I'm actually supporting his viewpoint by saying this, which is B2B, the leadership arguing point on this one is you're my B2B product manager. If the person who is in charge of buying the software is unhappy because they're hearing opinions from people who work for them, I need you to establish a relationship with that person who does the buying and then go to them and set up meetings with the the individual users and work that out along the way. Yeah. I need you to build all those relationships. So so is building all those relationships any different than the first person who's in the B2C market where they're running a bunch of surveys to identify the people and then meeting one-on-one with those people to figure out how best to use the software. To me, again, not, not me, Brian, the product manager, I mean me, Brian, the executive of Brian and Ohm Software Company, to me, I I don't care. Like, I don't care if you have to run a bunch of surveys to figure out the, who the users are to ask them what the problem are, or if you have to meet with this person who owns the contract, who pays the money to figure out who the users are, to meet with them to figure out who the, like, yeah. I, 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 the executive, that's what I pay you for. Sure. Figure out who the users are, figure out what they need, and then make them happy. Yeah. No, spot on. Absolutely. The executives don't really care the the nitty gritty of that, right? And the how and all right, of that right. stuff. But the product manager should care about that. They should define who the customer is, not just it's a business. What type of business is it? How are they using the product or yep. planning to use the product? Understand all of that and then engage with them. I mean, it's one thing to just put it into the contract, but engage with them on an ongoing basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the only way you're going to deliver what they want, right? Yeah. So it's basically taking very short steps, right? And bringing them in and say, is this what you want? Yeah. And then adapting and pivoting as the feedback, uh, you know, dictates. Yeah. 
you want to move on to some of his other oh, points? Yeah, let's do that, because he's got quite a few there. All right. Number two, the PM Books Experiment. Take three random books on being a PM. Go to the index at the end. Do you find B2B or B2C? If so, you are lucky. I'm trying to understand if he means B2C is not explored or B2B is not explored. Hey, he's I, saying both. I Oh, 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 right? okay. He's saying both. So he's saying it's just not written about. It's what I, my interpretation of that is. He's saying, you go find three books, you won't find oh. B2B or B2C. Now, oh. that might be right. Oh, he means they like agnostic. They, yeah. like they're, they're writing about yes. product management yeah, agnostic. Yeah, equally, to, like without. Uh, yeah, I yeah, see. Yeah. That's what I think he's saying, and I agree with that. I think, I think he's right. I haven't seen much literature on targeting specifically the B2B sector or the B2C sector. Right. That's interesting. I have to say, like all the all the PM books, all, all like the inspired and all all the books that I tell people to read, Crossing the Chasm is probably the only book that's relevant in this category of B two B versus B two C. Because in Crossing the Chasm, it forces you to think about your market. Are the people the 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 personas that you're selling to, which could be b2b or b2c depending on what the way you look at it what segment of the market are those personas in in crossing the chasm i would argue that all of the 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 laggards the late adopters and the laggards i would argue that those probably are all b b2b users i'm going to argue about this but then now i'm going to contradict what i'm arguing about so I i should probably go find the jeffrey moore graph and show it on the screen. Nice. Okay. I like this version of the picture too because it shows early market and mainstream market as separate. The late majority and the laggards, I think of those as your typical B2B market. They want all the features. They don't want to sign on until they have all the features possible. If you're in a B2B market and you're working for innovators or early adopters, I would be shocked. I would be shocked that you found people who have users behind them that have no software that helps them do whatever they're doing. I mean, you're, right. you're, you're sitting on a gold mine at that point, I would think. Yeah, yeah, that's gotta be the very rare. I very imagine. rare, yeah. So in B2C software, I mean, this is anyone who's ever released a mobile app to the app store and has blown up right. is in the, in the early market because they're releasing a mobile app that, that does something that no other application does. So innovators, early adopters, those are the people that run out and stand in line to buy the latest iPhone. There's tons of those people. They're not difficult to find and their problems are not difficult to sniff out. Well, I guess I just, I guess I just blew myself out of the water. You could easily argue like, oh, their problems, oh, Brian, those problems are not difficult to sniff out. Why are you not like rolling in your Scrooge McDuck money bin and like taking a nosedive into your gold mine at this point if you work in slow moving late majority laggard b2b software you can see lots of opportunities for their early adopters you know i mean the innovators and the early adopters whether your company can be convinced to invest in those opportunities and to free you up to to go find those markets that's a whole different discussion. Sure. I don't even know if that fits into the discussion of what we're talking about today because there is an element of product management 
that has to do with product marketing, that has to do with finding the people that need those features, like a cold calling, randomly messaging people on LinkedIn or Facebook or whatever you're using. Ugh. I'm not saying LinkedIn is Facebook, but uh, <laughs> basically going and, and finding and creating the market that you're trying to sell to. Yeah, definitely. Definitely that is true, especially at the, the, the beginning of that graph. You could build things into your product that give you the feedback yeah. based on what people are doing, right? Right, yeah. right? And so things like early adopters, I mean, they they pretty much figure out, innovators and early adopters, they pretty much figure out what the customers want, yeah. but then they will version their product, right? So that you could buy the iPhone 12 and then here's 13 and we've yeah. added two more things. Right. But those two things will definitely appeal to those people that are specifically looking for that. Like, oh, there's an extra camera on here. Or we went up from a gazillion megapixels to multi-trillion megapixels. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And some photographers would love that. Mm -hmm. But for most people, they're going to look at that and go, what else is there? But yet, it's a seller. It, it sells. And the cost of manufacturing of that new version is minuscule compared yeah. to coming up with it to begin with so the other thing is like f finding that market where if you're if you look at the innovators i'm talking the 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 top two percent of the market like you will know that you have found the innovators because once they connect with you they will be beating down your door if not every week every day to say, hey, can you add this? Hey, can you change this setting? Hey, can you change whatever? A lot of people that I meet, especially executives, they're like, oh, well, I don't, this doesn't really mean anything to me. Where does the money come from? I don't understand. I was like, well, the innovators and early adopters, they they have no product. They have nothing. That That's why they're coming to you to build something because there is nothing on the market. Yeah. So you can charge. A premium. A anything. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Anything. Right, right. They, they're willing to write you a, a blank, blank check. check. <laughs> but the trade-off to that blank check is when they come asking for a feature, you need to be responsive. You need some wiggle room to try different things to satisfy them. That's where the chasm exists before you cross to the early majority to the to the, to all the people that are like oh well do, do you think these flat screen TVs will take off do, should i invest in them or whatever you need something to cross over to them you know whether it's a whether it's a the cost of your manufacturing dipping and the cost of the the item on the open market going down or whatever something something that makes it more palatable to these people whether the early adopters as opposed to the early majority have such a leg up on the early majority that the early majority is like whoa i gotta i gotta bridge this. i can't i can't have this right like these people the, all these competitors are beating me up so hard in my market i gotta have this new tech or whatever sure you know sure that's, that's absolutely right let's cut to his uh, common arguments of b2b slash to c proponents he says the sales process is longer i, I assume in b2b he yeah. means to sell yeah. okay yeah because yeah. b2c people can just click buy on your site and they got it okay so he says the pm doesn't sell products you can interview customers talk to your stakeholders and analyze product metrics anytime you want hopefully your empowered team owns the releases you should also ensure that ideas are viable for the business sales included this is pm 101 it's interesting he starts with that sentence the pm doesn't sell products and then he ends with the sentence this is pm 101 
That that I find interesting. Uh, is, that he's gotten off on the first real valid sticking point for me, which is in the B2B cycle. The cycle of sales is much longer. User can't just go on the site, click, enter their credit card, and start buying. Right. I, I agree with that. That That is different. And the PM is not the person hitting the street to sell stuff. It's, just, it's either your marketing people right. with their marketing campaigns or your salespeople with customer visits and you know customer one-on-ones and stuff like that. A lot of that these days is being changed to just basically the online model. But, right, uh, right. But yeah, that, I, I see. I see what he's trying to say there. The PM doesn't sell product. Yeah, not directly anyway. For B two B. So back to the common arguments of the B two B slash B two C. So the sales process is longer. We talked about that. Yes, the sales process might be longer. So here, here's what I consider like the a, a valid part of what we're talking about. The sales process is longer. Okay. So if I think about a B two C process. I think the customer can go to my product and just sign up and start paying. Like that's what, there's not really a process. Like they just go to my, my product is a process. There's no yeah. process. The process is no process. So in the B2B, where I assume I have some kind of like enterprise license. SLAs, kind of, I mean, there's a lot. Some kind of contract. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, so. But it's a different animal. I wouldn't compare the two and say, oh, this is longer. It's just a different animal. What does that mean, though? Well, well, like, does it require a different skill set? or Maybe, but I think the comparison is invalid, right? It's two different things. So instead of saying this is longer, this is shorter, forget about that. It's how do we be more effective at each of those as a PM? And what, what do we need to bring in order to be successful in each of those areas, B2B, B2C? And I guess his argument is the skill sets are leveler, really, right? It doesn't matter whether you're in B2B or B2C. I think that's what he's saying. And to a large degree, that's true, but there's some nuances. He's kind of enumerated some of those separately. Let's just take each scenario, just quickly. So we say B2B. Your customer is usually very knowledgeable. They know exactly what they need. In fact, they can stipulate their needs and you're providing them, right? Uh, may, maybe, maybe. Like I, I, don't, I rarely interrupt a, a, a process to be like, mm, I don't know about that. For this one, like the, the, the buyer in this scenario, like they know what the problems are. I will agree with you on that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do they know what they need? Well, that's what I mean. They, I, their needs rather than the how to fulfill the needs. Yeah. Right. They don't know how. Oh, I, I agree with you on they know what their problems are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a better way to put it. So they they know what their needs or problems are. They B to C people, oftentimes don't necessarily. They think they might know. It's sometimes they're just jumping on a bandwagon it's a fad sometimes sometimes it's because that's the latest thing to do everyone else is doing it following social media etc that customer isn't as knowledgeable about let's just say their needs as a b2b customer is and then we move on from there to the exacting nature of the transaction right Right. the b2b yeah like you said there's a contract in place right they might look at SLAs, things like that. Sure, yeah. Not so much a B2C, right? And from the provider standpoint, if you're the providing organization, then your downside is very little. You might lose a customer mm-hmm. with, or a few customers with a B2C, but mm-hmm. with a, in the B2B environment, even one customer could be a significant customer right. in terms of size, right. market share, whatever. So 
I think there's some nuances there that require specific, I don't want to say skills. I, I think you need to be aware that these are different customers, right? And you need to be sensitive to their needs. Mm-hmm. I, I'm stopping short of saying skills because I think the skills could be a leveler. You need to know how to negotiate. You need yeah. to know how to listen carefully. Yeah. All of those things are kind of like almost like a given in, yeah. in both of those scenarios. I don't know if you're arguing uh, for, for his point or against his point. I have no but, idea. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, I think we're both doing a terrible job of presenting the opposition. What he's saying is the sales process is longer. I agree with that. It is longer. I, I, a buyer can't just go to your website, sign up, and be like, I got 50 users. Let me click, 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 click. Let me get 50 licenses, and let me just sign up. Why, why can't they do that? But but a buyer is not going to do that. There's a some kind of larger commitment and a contract, et cetera, so some kind of metrics, some kind of yeah. business business agreement or whatever. I, yes, but the problems they're trying to solve... Like whether you're dealing with one individual person who's like, oh, I need a method of automating this thing, and your site like a Zapier kind of site, yeah, like, yeah, 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 and your site That's does a good it for example. me. Whereas if I contract with you, all of the users that I represent will be able to use your product to integrate APIs to automate whatever I want. It's the same problem being solved it's just the scale of the problem is different yeah scale definitely enters into it for sure right because b2b the scale is is correspondingly much bigger the the, the other thing there might be that the the b2b customer may co-brand or rebrand your product if you're the seller so the end consumer doesn't even know that it's your product i've and i have i worked on mobile apps that way where one of the things that people ask the b2b buyers ask you the company is i want to put my logo on your mobile app i want to spin it off i don't want other users other bandwidth or whatever to be directed at me. i want my own dedicated channel that's no problem that's not difficult for a product person to vet out yeah you know and and, and if you're gonna if you can do it on a mass scale and let's say you're working on procedural workflow software like I've worked, a few on, out there. I've worked on quite a few mm-hmm. um, uh, software applications that require you to set up a workflow in the application using some kind of workflow builder, right? Um, you, you yeah, know, like you, an engine you, or something. Yeah, you, yeah, some kind of step where you, I go to step X, and then in step X, it asks you for some stuff, and you enter that, and then depending on your input from step X, you go to either step Y or step Z. If you don't have your financial stuff, you go to Y, and if you do have your financial stuff, you go to Z, whatever some kind of workflow builder. Every workflow builder site I've ever used has been terrible. But the point is, like you're building something for either a consumer directly, or you're building something on behalf of somebody else who has consumers on the other side, who have, uh, when I say consumers, I mean customers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So product, your job in on both sides of these is to get to that person at the end of the line. So if you're signing some kind of multi-year contract or whatever like you need to try to get some kind of clause into that contract that says hey your pool of users like identify a few power users or executive users or senior users or some representative slice of your user pool and i will make contact with i the vendor in this case, right? Because we're talking about contracts now. Sure. I, the vendor, will make contact with them and I will establish a relationship and I'll do everything I would do in, in B2C. I'll do now, but I, I I have another partner 
in the mix. I have this person who works at the other company. I don't see that in any way, shape, or form as any kind of negative because I've worked in like the largest of the large companies out there. So even if you're working in large companies that and you have like you have multiple stakeholders, VPs, CLO executives, people in other areas of the company that you have to get on good terms with, you're doing this anyway. So I don't, I don't see it as being like, oh, there's a big, there's a big segmentation of skill or whatever. It's just something, it's something else you need to apply and be aware of when you're deploying your product best, best practices. Oh boy. Now I've completely, <laughs> I'm completely on one side of the discussion. So he said the sales process is longer. All right. He outlines a few things. You might use different metrics, B2B versus B2C. You might use different metrics. Every product uses different metrics. So you're going to stick with one product. For your entire career i like at a a a r r metrics it's probably for pirates metrics pyrometrics acquisition acquisition or awareness activation retention referral revenue okay yeah those are pretty standard metrics a a a r metrics the five phases in customer lifecycle are universal and can be applied to any product yeah, generally speaking, I agree with that. Uh, acquisition, activation, retention, referral, revenue. In the uh, Chat GPT podcast, we'll go more in depth on Oh, these. that's only a good yeah, one, everyone. Yeah. Okay, so generally saying, hey, you have slightly different metrics, but overall, the metrics are kind of the same. Yeah, I think the emphasis is slightly different, but it's the same metrics, really, yeah. at the end of the day, right? Yeah. So those five things that he talks about, those elements don't go away. Whether it's B2B right. or B2C. Right. This is a slightly different shift on them, basically depending on who you're working for, the yeah. environment you're working in. Anyway, see, a user and buyer are typically different people. We, we talked about this a yeah, lot we, already we in this have. podcast. But yeah. there, there may be even more decision makers. You need to understand who they are and what their specific needs or objectives are. Address them with your product. Ultimately, you're talking to people. That's his trade-off is, oh, hey, you're just talking to people. You, the fact that you're talking to more people really shouldn't deter you or make you think that anything different is occurring here. I have to agree with that. You are dealing with people, at least for now, until robots take over or AI takes <laughs> over or whatever. I welcome um, them. Yeah, that would be one. good. Yeah, for I wish them luck. So yeah, yeah definitely. The, there's really nothing different between B2B or B2C when it comes to interacting, right? You're still interacting with people. Figure out what their needs, desires, wants are and what their motivations are. You know, try and get under their uh, psyche yeah. to figure out what's in it for them, the whiffums. That doesn't go away. Yeah. And, and and also, like, I remember in the interview that I was talking about at the start of the podcast, I remember saying, I was like, well, B2B sales, actually, if you think about them, they're actually easier than B2C sales. Because in B2B sales, you only have to convince one person, if you think about it. I don't think she liked that answer. <laughs> I don't think she liked that answer at all. The point was in B2B sales, you only have to, you don't even have to convince, sorry. In B2B sales, you only, you don't even have to convince the consumers of the software, no, the you users. Don't. No, you don't. You need, you need that one person who's going to sign the contract. Yeah. That's really, I mean, that's what yeah. it boils down to. It. Yeah. If your product's any good, then you have an easy task of doing that with one or maybe two people right, as opposed right, yeah. to thousands yeah. right yeah typically yeah like your product being good is actually a bonus <laughs> to 
it used to be in the old days that used to be a prerequisite now it's just a bonus yeah it is a big (laughs) bonus to the people i mean i'm trying to think if i was ever given that question in an interview again how my answer would be different to that question because the the like if you're if you're b2b you really have to scrutinize where you're sitting on that jeffrey moore crossing the chasm the male curve yeah yeah Yeah, the curve yeah yeah because it kind of informs your pitch whereas in the the b2c you're throwing the marketing out there and you're letting the consumers come to you no matter what stage they're in you're saying hey these are our capabilities i don't know like the more i talk about the more i kind of convince myself that of the opposite opinion that I don't know what I'm talking about and everything I'm saying is wrong. <laughs> the arguments that they're different is that you create for a team and not a person in B2B. In B2B, you're creating for a group of people, not a specific persona, a, a group I don't know if that's persona. always true, though. I mean, you might have a singular persona at the end of the chain. I don't know. I'm well, just what, thinking uh, like, about well, So I believe what he's saying is you would go through these requirements in discovery regardless of his b2b or b2c i agree with that okay okay absolutely well, I, 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 agree, I, I agree with that statement i, I think just don't I, understand it the way it's phrased I here i think that's what he's saying okay I, I well think that's true then i agree i think he's sure. he's arguing against he's saying he's saying hey in b2b software you're dealing with a large swath of users you're not dealing with one specific person <laughs> yeah, like uh, I, that's I, true my pushback on this it, it's 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 like paper thin but my pushback on this is a lot of companies that develop B2B software, they will resist and push back against the user persona exercise. They'll try to create software that is a catch-all for everybody. Yes. Well, again, we go back to the crossing the chasm where the, 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 the late adopters and whatnot is like the late adopters, they want software that, that checks every box it, it it is used by every expert across every segment of the company and if you're going to niche down to a specific thing in your software then if you're going to make it useful for one person you're going to make it not useful for several other people and now i don't want to buy it i'm reaching to make this point to say hey you're creating for a team not a person meaning you're sub-optimizing everybody to optimize one user and I remember a story, and I don't, I don't know where the story came from, about when they were designing the cockpit of a fighter jet. And when they designed the cockpit of a fighter jet, they designed the seat and the controls and everything. And the seat and the controls and everything, they, they, they went through a bunch of prototypes, and they found out that they, the, best, the best way to design the seat was to pick a certain height and design the seat for that height. Because they try to make things adjustable and try to do whatever. And then what they ended up finding out was when you try to optimize all over the place, you sub-optimize for everybody. Everyone. Yes. So they, they so basically, like, if you ever discover that, like, fighter pilots are a certain height, there's a reason why fighter pilots are a certain height. It's because all the equipment is designed for people in that small segment of height difference. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. I, I guess to a lesser degree, car seatbelts used to be that way. They were static in the old days. If it fit you, great. If it didn't, oh well, too bad. Right. Right. Yeah. And now they've right. made them slightly adjustable vertically, so they you can kind of make sure that it fits mm-hmm. you right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, you, so that's a good example, the fighter pilot example. 
optimizing for everyone sub optimizes for no i got it backwards no I need no, more you, coffee. no you uh, optimizing for an individual group yeah or person sub optimizes for everybody Anyone else, else. Yeah. but that might be your user group right that's knowing your user persona you might want to take a step back and be like oh who's our software optimized for and if the answer is oh i don't know like you might have a problem absolutely you know yeah yeah go B, back B, to the B, drawing board. doesn't really matter that's right that's absolutely right does he talk about that uh let's find out so that's what 3d is all about you create for a team not a person that that, that that's what the counter argument is yeah however i'm saying what are you making this argument point about b2b or b2c because i would say like your B2C stuff is not even going to get off the ground if you haven't created for a person. It's got to, yeah, it's got to resonate with the end user, the user. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Not, so a, not like, a group. I could, I could see where he's saying like, oh, I'll just develop some crap and as long as the buyer is impressed by it, they'll buy it. And if we don't get users, I, I mean, I got like Dude, I, that's a risky strategy, like, though. Oh, yeah, but I guess we should stop here. I hear you. It's a risky strategy for for Brian and Ohm's software development company. But pretend for a second that Brian and Ohm's software development company, like we only ever wanted to be in business two years, and then we we were just gonna we're just buying we're just creating our business to sell out, yeah. and make us each a couple million dollars. Like we don't need long term traction. We only need a buyer or two, right? And then the people that go to buy our company are buying our market segment. And even though all the users agree, 100% of our surveys agree, this is not the best software. The UI is clunky. I can't get what I want. It's I, I Think about anybody that ever uses Jira. <laughs> like the workflow builder is clunky. Why are my fields on my screen different from screen to screen, from project to project? Why can't I get a consolidated leadership viewpoint? Why do I got to buy an extra product? But again, depending on what we're going for as a company, that might not be the point. We might be like, hey, nobody else has got this software. Like Jira, right? Jira. It's Jira, Azure DevOps, VSTS. Maybe, maybe, aha. Uh -huh. I, I don't even know if they're really on the same level. Think about think about it from Atlassian's viewpoint. It's like, you know, it's good enough to penetrate the market. Hopefully, someone will come along and buy us so I can buy two or three more yachts. Yeah. So they're really just after a larger customer base. In, or a larger you know, yacht. Or yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Right. Yeah. A larger yacht. Yeah. Exactly. And, and and sometimes it's a race to get to market as well, right? So the, the crappy yeah. product, well, let's right. just get ahead. Get, a, get at least a few people in there, uh, right. maybe a few thousand, doesn't matter. Right. We're early into the market and therefore, as, a, as, as such, a market leader, right. initially at least. It could be. I mean, it depends on what your strategy is. Yeah. Like not, none, of, none of anything he's talking about talks about strategy. And I'm going to interview a product manager. Like I'm a Brian Ohm software company. Right, Ohm basically runs the whole company, and I just maraud around and uh, like sailor around your yacht. Yeah, <laughs> and we interview somebody who's going to be our product person. Hey, show me that you can mobilize B to B users versus show me you can mobilize B to C users. From what he's asking, I feel like I rewrite this post to basically come at it from the perspective of let me interview for product people. And here are the questions, B to B, B to C. Maybe we should have restarted this whole podcast and oh, gone at it from that perspective. That would have been good. I'm interviewing somebody. I know that they mostly have 
B2C experience. They mostly have worked on mobile apps, direct consumer, maybe, right. maybe I'm in the gaming industry or whatever, versus I'm hiring someone that I'm selling to other companies and they have internal users and stuff like that. Like maybe, maybe that would have been a better way to frame this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's true. That that would have been interesting. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, maybe we'll do it again. He goes on and he says, "Marketing and sales are different in B two B. Decisions are rational." Well, <laughs> if he had me until then, until different in B two B. Decisions are rational. So is he saying in B two C they're irrational? No. Well, well, actually, yeah. <laughs> actually, yeah. Let's read on. I, uh, I, yeah. Let's read on. That. Yeah. It's not business, but people who make decisions. People with dreams, ambitions, fears, and desires, even CFOs, empathize with them. Instead of focusing on transactions, focus on creating value. So let's read item E again. Marketing and sales are different. In B2B, decisions are, he says rational. I'm gonna, I'm gonna revise rational. In B2B, decisions are more logical and less emotional based Whereas a, a, a direct consumer might be buying something because they're so angry about a problem or something like that. That that's that's I think that's where he's going. Buying something on the promise of something to come, perhaps as well, right? So sometimes you hook them in, and then on the promise uh, right. of what's yeah. coming on, later, on, on, not on, the now. Pro- on the promise of this will reduce our our business pain point. Mm-hmm. This will solve a problem for us. B two B software solve a problem for us organizationally a problem in our workflow if you think about b2c software i mean i guess you could say like hey i as a consumer am angry that this problem exists and therefore will sign up for whatever or there'll be some other reason i don't like the evidence that he's giving here i don't know how great it is when i when i really step back and think about it for a second because don't individual consumers go through the same mental process as people buying for a segment of users inside their company. They do. I think it's just that the scale is different. Well, the scale is different. Every every company that I've ever been at where I bought software for other people, because I've been in this position, I've been asked by my leadership or finance or somebody, like, uh, Brian, you want to buy this software package to solve this business problem that we have? Go out and prove that this is the best solution. Give me three options. Show me the cost side by side. Show me how you're going to use it in the future. I've jumped through hoops. So if he's saying B2B people invest more time thinking about the solution. He's probably right. I, I think he might be right on that one. But I lack evidence about a B2C consumers in mass. Because I don't, some people might just like oh, find a thing through an ad and click it and subscribe. Whereas some people might sit on it for a month, do a free trial and sign up for it afterwards. I have no idea. What he's saying, I, I kind of agree with, but also I was like, I don't really have the numbers to prove or disprove it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I agree. So the, A, the volume is much bigger in B2C, right? We know that, there's more customers yeah, there. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, depending on your market space, yes. Yeah, depend- yes, absolutely. The thought process that a B2C consumer goes through probably is very similar, uh-huh. right? What's in it for me? Is it worth me spending the money, right? What are the benefits? All of that sort of thing. But the amount of money they're spending, individually at least, is minuscule compared to a B2B company. In your example of analyzing three different alternatives, blah, blah, blah. Right. So that's what I meant. The scale is different. But... As far as a product manager looking at this, 
how are the skills different, right? That's just coming back to his point about the skills, how yeah. are they different? Yeah. That, that is a good question, I think, to ask. Are they different? Other than the scale, are they different? You're still thinking about the value proposition of a product, the cost element of it, how it's going to monetize over time, Still think about those things. I don't really have a good argument point. If you're a product manager and you're not doing marketing or sales and you don't know what's happening in those departments, like yeah. we have a different problem yeah. at that point. Yeah. Like you, you, regard, B2C, B2B, doesn't really matter. You should be integrated into those processes. Amen. Absolutely. Otherwise, you're on an island. So let, let's like let's move on to that. Like, sure. There, I love that this is one sentence without a period. Yeah. There, there are custom feature requests. I'm going to roll the two of these together for the purposes of the time. There are custom feature requests and also, but we work in a customer vendor relationship. Let's think about both of these. Sure. Custom feature requests, customer vendor relationship. You rely on us for your stuff. Occasionally, when you rely on us for your stuff, you'll ask us for things, new features, bug fixes, whatever. Let's pretend for a sec for a second that we're on like a yearly recurring government type renewal cycle. Once okay. a year we meet with our customers and once a year they give us a laundry list of, Oh, in order to renew, you got to do X, Y, Z and get that in the application or else we're not going to renew. Even though all that might be just sure. Bluster. You know, yeah, it might, yeah, it might yeah. be nonsense. Yeah. Uh, okay. Like, how is that any different than normally servicing your customers' requests other than, like, rather than servicing them on a regular basis, you're servicing them once a year on a time frame. That's not a great point. To no, me. it's it's not different. So I, I see something a little bit different there than in his two statements there. Mm -hmm. I think in one of them, he's saying there are custom feature requests. The other one is saying that, so the first one, F, I think his point there, if I'm reading this and interpreting it correctly, is custom feature requests from B2C customers. That's what I'm seeing there. And then the other one where it says, ah, but we work in a customer vendor relationship. That might be a B2B customer requesting something. In the former, you might say, well, that's interesting. Do enough people want that, yeah. right? And the second one is like, well, uh, the only customer we have for this product or a few customers that we have, the business customers are asking for this. We're gonna listen carefully. Yeah. There. So I'm a B2B software vendor my B2B customers ask me for custom features that have to do with their business specifically. So that scenario F is backed up by his scenario G where he says, oh, but we work in a customer vendor. So the, so we're, we, this Brian Ohm software company is the vendor to government contract A, whatever. We have a relationship, which means we don't want to endanger renewal of the contract. So therefore F comes into consideration of you want custom features that no other customer that we have under our giant contract vehicle, whatever, are asking for. So you're just gonna say yes, probably, because you so, want the renewals. We'll say yes, yeah, we'll say yes. And then we'll market whatever we develop for you for, to other people. If we can't charge you the typical non-government version of this is you want feature x we will develop feature x for you you will pay for feature x and then we reserve the right to open up feature x to other customers and make them pay for it yeah so then we can recoup all of the development costs 
of developing feature access. Like that, that's that's typical SaaS. Sure. Yeah. So basically, my sales team gets to add as a, on on a checklist item of hey, what do you want? You want to pay for these items? You like feature X now is appears as a checklist item. Here's what we decide it's going to cost, and here we go. Congratulations, sales team. I just gave you a, a bunch of like a boost to your bonuses for the year. You could say no to custom feature requests because they don't fit your product vision or your company vision or whatever, but then you risk your renewal of your contracts. And that's a huge risk. So that That's where he says the customer vendor relationship is at jeopardy now right. because you've pushed back on too many of your feature requests. Yeah, that all makes sense in the B2B scenario. What happens in the B2C scenario there? That is a great question. I would hope that you're doing surveys or polls or something to figure out what the most important features you should be. I would hope that you're doing like fake door scenarios mm -hmm. where you're adding items in your menus on the screens that are available to the customers so they can click on things. So you can say, we got a request to allow customers to, to exercise Z functionality or Z functionality if you're in the UK. <laughs> and we want to run that down. So we're going to add a new menu on the left that when you click on it, it says this functionality is on the way. Please be patient. Yeah. Right. B2C. This is B2C. Super tricky. So we're basically tricking our users into clicking on things like if they don't care about it, like we will just quietly remove it. Remove it. Yeah. Facebook did this a uh, uh, way 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 a long time ago. Brought this up on one of the first podcast that Curtis was on when they were thinking about adding a dating application sort of functionality to the application they added dating to, to their menus and enough people clicked on it where they went and they fully developed the functionality that is an example of adding a, a, a fake door to your application for the purposes of gathering stats to prove whether you should build something or not like it, it, it cost them almost nothing that's right it costs them almost nothing to say, oh, X percentage of people are trying to go do dating in this application that has nothing to do with dating. That's a brilliant way to, 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 to access that kind of information. Yep, that's very, very true. How do you do that in a B2B scenario, though? I, I mean, I, I would argue that the, the cost of adding that functionality is so low. You can just do it. And, and then you can report to whoever buys functionality, hey, X percentage of your users, they seem to want to do this. Do you think you might want to pay for functionality Z or Z? I mean, you know. Excellent. Yeah, in the UK. I like it. I like it a lot. Because it's evidence-based. It's, it's evidence not just based. simply saying, hey, exactly we think right. your, your customers might like this. Yeah. We know they will. Right. That's excellent. That's basically the end of his you know, take on the subject. I wish I could have represented the two sides of the, I wish I, I wish my tie could have stayed straighter in this discussion, but I wish I could have represented his back and forth with a little error viewpoint. Mm -hmm. But after looking at his points, after discussing it, like in terms of his evidence, I don't know, I, I kind of have to, my take on it is like, if, if you, if you truly are product focused, like, you really shouldn't have a problem floating between the two worlds, the B2B, B2C world. I agree with that. I think the as far as he started off with skills or whatever it was, I think if you're a true product person, the skills that you bring 
are relatable to either environment. Right. 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 I don't want to say transferable because that assumes that they exist in one place and not the other. Yeah. That's not the case. It's just where you apply it, how you apply them. Based on just this podcast alone, just what we, we've discussed and his post here, I would have a hard time saying like, oh, well, I definitively know that this person would be good B2B versus B2C. Yeah. Yeah. I think the only thing you could lean on is their experience. They've spent years in one environment. You know, they're going to be okay there at least. Yeah. And and you don't know if they're going to be okay. The other, you just don't know because some people cannot adapt that way because they have a, like you mentioned this earlier, they have a bit of a fixed mindset when it comes to the the two environments. Yeah. I think if I were in B2C software, for like mobile apps, for example, because that's that's that that's been my experience in BDC software, because because you know immediately if you messed up in a release because the users beat you up in the app stores. Oh, this is a terrible release, and they'll tell you right away. That that's been my experience. The difference here is if I'm hiring somebody and they can float between two worlds, B two B versus B two C, meaning. I try something with this subset of users, doesn't matter what the subset of users is, and it doesn't work out, and they pivot and try something else, like that, that is a mindset. Rather than I try something with a subset of users, it doesn't work out, and therefore I blame the users, or I blame my salespeople, or I blame the, the development department, yeah, or something, yeah, yeah. Yeah, something, something like that, right? All right, let's, so let's put a bow on this one. Uh, I guess there are some things with respect to experience that can kind of catapult you ahead in either environment, right? Or pull you back. Or pull you back, yeah. 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 The natural ability versus skill involved, like a lot of it is the same. I agree, absolutely. Let us know what you think in the comments below. That's right. And don't forget to smash that like button. Smash it!